0: Hello and welcome to the Antifada. Sean KB here with one of my occasional solo episodes. Close observers of the show will recognize what this means. I have an excellent guest and will be diving deep into history and political economy. So apologies in advance if you feel compelled to listen to this episode at half speed. Today I'm pleased to have as our guest, Tony Norfield. Tony worked for decades in international finance and has combined his real world experience in the trenches with the trenchant Marxist critique of the capitalist financial system in his excellent 2016 book, The City, Out From Verso. His analysis of class power and capitalist imperialism is as relevant today as it was five years ago. So I'm super excited to have him on. Tony, welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Yeah,
0: pleased to be here. Really good to have you. I, I heard you on uh, Cosmopod a few weeks ago, and I said, if they could have Tony Norfield, then so can we. <laughs> it was a good episode. Um before we get to the main event, just a reminder to everyone out there that our show relies on your support. If you haven't done so yet, please become a patron at patreon.com slash theantifada. You'll get access to bonus content, access to our Discord server, and our undying love and affection. So, Tony, first off, tell us a bit about your book and what inspired it.
1: Um. Well, basically, I... I'd been a Marxist, really all my adult life. Um, and I was heavily involved in politics for over 10 years. Um, I'm getting on a bit now. That, that ended around the time of the minor strike in Britain when um, the whole thing was uh, falling apart. And there basically seemed to be no real grounds for continuing in what I was doing before. Um, then various other things come along, you know, you need to get uh, jobs and things and whatever. And what I'd always had in the back of my mind, though, was um, to write something about imperialism, uh, a more solid piece. And <clears throat> on the back of working for about 20 years in uh, dealing rooms in the city of London and traveling all over the world on business, Um, I picked up quite a lot of empirical uh, knowledge, if you like, and I thought, okay, I'd put this in more of a Marxist framework. And one other thing really got on my nerves was um, in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008, uh, I was just getting more and more annoyed at reading a load of rubbish about what was going on and why it was going on. And... um, In particular, there was um, a lot of radical sounding stuff that was basically against banks and against finance and whatever. Right. But but it was on the one hand, misunderstanding what the hell was happening, but also essentially covering up for what was more of a, a liberal kind of reforming view of capitalism rather than something really trying to explain what the hell was happening. Um, So I I then uh, did belatedly a PhD. And then um, after that, I decided to well, substantially rewrite it, but turn it into a book. And that was kind of where the book came. But I thought that I what I would do is focus on um, on Britain and British imperialism in particular. But put it in the content, context of the uh, financial system worldwide and also show how that financial system works. So although the book's called The City, um, actually I had a bit of an argument with the publisher on this. I mm. didn't want to call it The City. I wanted to call it Invisible Empire mm. um, because that would really sort of show how there was a mechanism of imperial control which wasn't so obvious and so the the book covered the financial system in particular with britain but also showing the role that not simply the us which everyone focuses on but how a bunch of other
0: countries fit into the system
1: yeah. So that's that the basic gist and the motivation behind uh, doing that project.
0: That's that's one of the more powerful things about your book uh, is the history of Britain's imperialism. Um, in fact, we were I was going to jump right into the the meat of the book, the analysis and. Um, you know, of imperialism, but maybe we should start there because I think it shows why your analysis is both good and important when we talk about the UK, right? So it was common during the disastrous interventions of the 2000s for people, for our media and people in the United States to call Britain uh, America's lapdog, right? As though Blair and his government were just hopelessly under the sway of the United States and all of the UK's interests were subordinated to American interests. Um, coming out of your book, what is Britain's actual place within the imperial world system, and how is this related to its financial power?
1: Um, well, it's it's true in many respects that Britain is subordinate to the U.S., um, but then again, kind of everybody is. You know, the U.S. is the biggest power by far, um, but there is a, an aspect which should certainly be in the forefront of your mind when considering British imperialism, which is that there's very much a, a kind of, I wouldn't say a good cop, bad cop role, but it's kind of something like that. And the the Brits also have certain particular interests, which are facilitated through that role of being a kind of counterpart to the US. And um, and what they do, especially, is make every effort to keep the Anglo domination system in place. And whereas the US might be disliked by a bunch of countries for evident, uh, you know, invasions or clumsiness or you know just having bombed somebody, the Brits can go along and try and pretend to be the more diplomatic, hearing. Uh, you know, conciliatory the partner in the whole process. But <clears throat> essentially, though, what they, what they do is still promote their own interests. It's not as if they're only playing the role of deputy to the U.S. Um, and in the development of the financial system in the post-war period, they realized that sterling could no longer hack it as a world currency, and essentially they were using the dollar as the main medium of um, financial business. Uh, and you know, the Euro markets grew dramatically in the 1950s, mainly in, in the UK or in London. <clears throat> and a lot of the development of the financial system was done outside the US, which still had a lot of um, capital controls Compared to uh, more of an opening up that you had on the UK side,
0: so the Britain <sighs> carves out a very or British finance, I should say, in the City of London carves out a very important niche for itself even within the Bretton yeah. Woods arrangement.
1: Yeah, yeah, very much so, and um, that meant that it, you know, it it changed over the course of the different decades, you know, the fifties, the sixties, seventies, and later. Um, But essentially, you had in 1986, you had the Big Bang in London, the so-called Big Bang, which was um, uh, deregulating quite a lot of things in the city. And that led to a big boom Mm. in city business. And the Brits really profited quite a lot from that because they got a great deal of money from financial dealing, And although, you know, Britain's a rich power, but it didn't have a great deal of money to lend anybody. So what you do instead is you act as like a broker. You know, so you get hundreds and hundreds of banks to come to London. And then the London banks act as, uh, you know, an important kind of trading centre for all sorts of other things. So, for example, it's it's not quite so true today, but, you know, the dollar LIBOR rate, of course, is set in London, and there is no such market as LIBOR or an interbank lending rate in the same way in the US.
0: LIBOR, of course, came into my consciousness during that same financial crisis you were talking about in 2008. Never heard of it before, but it turns out the London interbank... Offered rate. Offered rate. Super yeah, important yeah. for international finance. Uh, it's banks lending with one another overnight, <laughs> essentially, right? And and yeah. the LIBOR shows the amount of trust that banks have in one another. And so in one of the breakdowns in 2008 was that trust, because you had a yeah, lot of yeah. uh, banks and, yeah. and other institutions in big, serious financial trouble.
1: Yeah, and, and and even though there's been a whole bunch of scandals around LIBOR and fixing it and all the rest of it, the the, the joke is that, you know, the problem isn't that LIBOR was fixed, and, and and ironically, it was sometimes fixed down rather than fixed up. So you know, you had people complaining, "Oh well, you know, you guys, you horrible bankers, you made my mortgage more expensive than it need have been." Well, now actually, half the time they were knocking it too low. Because during the crisis, what happened was a number of banks were trying to hide the fact they they were paying a great deal of money to borrow anything. So they were pretending the LIBOR rate was lower than it really was. So when they reported their LIBOR rates, which then averaged out into the system, um, the rates are often lower than they really were in reality. So, you know, you, you can thank the banks then for helping
0: reduce your mortgage rates. <laughs> <laughs> in this one particular instance. <laughs> yeah, sure. so, so, you're. So you're... I, 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 I'm joking, of course. Of <laughs> of course.
1: The, and, and the thing is, e- even today, although they're in the process of getting rid of the LIBOR setup, you've got a real problem that trillions of dollars are priced on the basis of these. Um, these kinds of interest rates, and the interest rates are set in London. I say that that's on the way out, but it will take a while before they probably get rid of it.
0: Your uh, so so, what your book argues, and this is very persuasive. Then is that it is true that the UK, as every other capitalist nation, is uh, is subordinated to the United States. That's because the United States is the global hegemon. You know, not just financially, but of course, uh, in all sorts of ways, economically and uh, militarily as well. But it's wrong to say that that the UK, the ruling class of the UK, let's just call it the ruling class, has either identical interests to the United States or isn't constantly working within that framework of U.S. hegemony in order to, you know, keep its financial system as powerful as it possibly can.
1: Yeah, they um, well. The, the whole Brexit thing has screwed this up pretty badly. Oh,
0: yeah. I was going to ask about Brexit.
1: <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, that, that as I, I did in the paperback version of my book, there's a, an afterword which goes into um, the whole background to that and the implications. And essentially, um, whereas there were various constraints on financial dealing in the U.S., there were hardly any in the U.K., so that that led to this great growth of uh, the financial system in in britain um but basically um the brexit situation is a real problem because it hinders the brits ability to do dealing with the rest of europe and european uh economies were obviously important and so you know, the um, if there's any extra difficulty of banks dealing with London, uh, with you know France, Germany, Italy, etc., that has an effect. So you found a a bunch of banks have been shifting, and the French, for example, have um, gone out of their way to try and pick up some of London's business. Mm. On the latest data, which I looked at just a couple of weeks ago, um, the Although the, the amount of international dealing from London is still far and away the biggest um, in the world, um, the French, or Paris, if you like, has picked up business quite a bit in the past year. But it's still, it's about 85% size of, uh, of of the British amount of dealing. And the and US dealing internationally, I mean, the US is a big place, but um, most of, bank dealing in the US is within the US. If you look at the international side of it, it's actually less than in London. And uh, so you've got the Brits are still number one, but they're diminishing their lead over everybody else.
0: There's a lot of different frames that people try to understand Brexit in. Uh, and one of them is from a populist direction, because obviously, Uh, Finance and financial services uh, begins to take a much larger and larger part of the U.K. economy after the 1980s with Thatcher. uh, The city becomes this very important way that U.K. is able to keep that imperial power to an extent that it had before. Uh, And so you so you have an argument and this might be true. uh, It probably is that this was a working class revolt, you know, against against the E.U., then you also have people argue, well, it's Nigel Farage, who's a former trader himself, so this is a UK ruling class revolt. And then you read your book and you realize that for decades now, the UK has, has had, uh, regardless of its leadership, a kind of inside-outside relationship with Europe yeah. because of its desire to, to remain this intermediary between European power and American power, right? So yeah. Brexit doesn't seem all that confusing from that aspect. It seems like it's part of a yeah. larger historical logic. So maybe speak more yeah. on that. Yeah, it
1: it's it's been that way more or less since 1945 actually. And um you know you you had even the in the beginnings of the EU um the British government was not bothered with it. They had they had their empire, although that was going to be diminishing pretty quickly, you know, with the independence of India and various other things. Um, but they had far less interest in getting heavily involved in European developments. And so they kind of, they tried to influence it, but didn't want to be one of the insiders at that point. Then when, they realized the European economies were growing pretty quickly, and the British Empire and the what was later called the Commonwealth was, relatively speaking, stagnating. They thought, oh, wait a minute, maybe we need to get involved in this, this area. So they made some efforts to do so, and then there was the uh, interesting kind of dispute between the Brits and General de Gaulle in France as to whether... The British could be trusted, and he didn't trust the Brits quite rightly because they were heavily involved with the Americans. And I think there was, I think a Polaris missile deal done, and that basically sealed it. That made it very clear that uh, the British strategic decision was with the U.S., not with developing Europe.
0: Yeah, the United States just handing uh, nuclear arms off to off to the U.K. means a special relationship, as they call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean that you know that that term, as you probably know, is uh, very uh, misuse. <laughs>
0: it doesn't matter that much. It's certainly very um, well used by uh, by yeah, elites yeah. and pundits <laughs> and politicians. Um, but but basically, the 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 Brits
1: have always had this kind of halfway house thing, a kind of transatlantic role rather than being uh, Europe per se. Um, but they're obviously heavily involved with the whole Five Eyes group, the International Intelligence Group of Canada, Australia, New Zealand and uh, uh, the U.S. And um, all other kinds of spying, military cooperation and everything else that they're doing all the time, basically. And to that extent, given the... um, role of the former British empire, but they still have uh, influence in these areas. Um, It was an important dimension, which uh, the Brits had a bit more knowledge of and influence over than the Americans did. So they they played this useful uh, double team role in in terms of uh, managing the global system. And when the US didn't want to if I got this right, uh, I think, for example, the I think it's the International Criminal Court that the Brits are members, but the U.S. is not.
0: We're definitely not members. Yeah, you you yeah. still hear um, uh, right wing politicians condemning yeah, that. Yeah. But,
1: but the Brits make sure that nothing untoward happens in the International Criminal Court. Oh,
0: so that's and America's know, so, interest. So they do this
1: kind of inside yeah. job. Sure. Uh, on behalf of the Anglo set up completely, you know. So you'll find Israel will always uh, never quite be prosecuted for anything.
0: Make you know? sure that it's always just African leaders that end yeah, up getting... Basically, yeah. It's basically yeah. like the African criminal court. It's just the international community yeah, yeah. grabbing yeah. African leaders and bringing yeah. them in. Um, so Brexit then, is there something... Uh, was there something determined about it? Was this a battle that was happening within the ruling class of Britain for many years and then finally exploded? What, like... Five six years um, ago, what what to what extent uh, was the working class of Britain brought along in order to take one side or the other?
1: Um, the the ironic thing is, this was largely a working class decision, mm. a reactionary one, but a, a working class decision nevertheless. Um, to put it in a little bit of context, the um, as I say, there, there's this halfway house role all the time. Um, back in the early 70s when the uh, the brits first joined the european community as it then was um you had the left so-called uh, left of the labor party for example um they didn't want to join and that was a mixture of reasons and actually some of them were quite explicitly wanting to develop uh, Commonwealth, namely empire relationships, rather than these horrible Europeans.
0: Sure, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. That's you know? one of the legacies <laughs> of Labour.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know Tony Benn, who looks upon as you know the Mother Teresa of the Labour Party, basically. You know he is very much of that point of view, and Jeremy Corbyn is that generation as well. Um, so you know they were kind of against the against y- Europe in inverted commas. Um, What then happened a bit later was that as you had um, right-wing conservative governments, they started thinking, hey, wait a minute, labor relations and legislation in European countries is actually more favorable than it is in Britain. You know, they were far less anti-union and anti-strikes and this kind of thing. So they warmed up to thinking the EU was
0: okay after all. Because there was, it was, they had better mechanisms for disciplining the working class, amongst other yeah. things, right? Yeah.
1: And, and it's true, actually. This, this is a dimension often denied by the left, that there is more kind of um, labor protection than you would think would normally happen. I mean, you know, you compare it with the U.S., there's zero, right? Yeah. Uh, but but, but there's, there's far more in many European countries. And this is to do with political stability. You know, I mean, that, that's another discussion to have. But essentially, the last thing um, they want is have you know widespread revolt causing political disruption after all the wonderful experiences they've had with fascism and everything in the in the 1930s. Right. Sure. <clears throat> and um, so basically, the the Labour left and most people, certainly all the trade unions, were more pro-EU from the 1980s ish then what happened was um as as you had a a general squeeze on living standards and then from the early 2000s you had um more of an influx of eu workers especially from eastern europe who recently joined um so you then had a Two factors coming together. You had, on the one hand, a general squeeze on living standards, as you know, a normal capitalist process. <laughs> <laughs> on top of that, you had um, relatively well-skilled, hard-working, whatever, and cheaper labour coming from, say, Poland, in particular, the biggest country. Also, Hungary, Czech Republic, and a few others were c- coming to uh the EU getting uh, sorry coming to the UK getting jobs so it then led um a big chunk you know hard to put a percentage on it but a big chunk of British workers to blame the EU for the fact that there were worse living conditions right were you know worse jobs available and that kind of stuff all the zero hours contracts and all that crap nothing to do with the EU. And all the other things that have happened, nothing to do with the EU, all down to British governments, but they ended up blaming EU workers. So the whole Brexit thing, um, the the main slogan was "Take back control." Now, of course, if you're an imperialist power, the idea you don't have any control is ridiculous, right? Right. Okay. No, you're you're one of the major powers in the in the world. Okay, second to the US, but you know, one of the big ones. <clears throat> So the idea that you're some, you know, put put down upon country, you know, blah blah, blah, you know, nobody listens to, and all the rest of it, just absurd. Um, But what take back control really meant was take back control of immigration, Mm -hmm. because under the free market in labour and all the other things, um, it was not possible um, as in decades before to have immigration controls in the in the same way. And so you had essentially um, an economic moan and complaint from British workers adding to only a relatively small section of the British ruling class who were who didn't like Europe. Some of them wanted to get get rid of all kinds of regulation that the e u is imposing and have you know a scorched earth policy regarding uh whether it be regulation or especially labour regulation and um <clears throat> so you had you know, some die hard old imperialists who hated, hated the
0: Europeans. The Jason, Jacob Rees-Moggs of the world. I mean. yeah, those, yeah, those characters, yeah.
1: And and you had a had a bunch of, um, you know, scorched earth people allying then, and this, you know, it's a most absurd political alliance, allying then with a big chunk of the British working class that didn't want EU immigration. And that was enough to tip it over to 52%. All of them, I won't say all, you know, but a lot of the middle class and the ruling class in general were pro-EU. You know, it clearly made sense from the point of view of British business and all the rest of it. You know, also all the other things that you would do, the freedoms and all the rest of it. That that was attractive to a substantial chunk of the population, but in the referendum, less than the 50 percent. So that was the problem. Um and essentially, Brexit was the UK's version of the right-wing populism that you see in the US with Trump. And it's the UK's version of what you're seeing throughout Northwest Europe in general. You're seeing similar kinds of things happening in uh,
0: in France, in Scandinavia. Uh, Guy Ge- Wilders, right? Guy Ge- Wilders, is that his name? The very reactionary yeah. Dutch politician. Yeah. Very similar.
2: Yeah.
1: And you got Marine Le Pen and all the rest of them in France, you know,
0: yeah. So, yeah, sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, so So basically, um, and, and this really is, I think, from a political perspective, is the unfortunate but nevertheless dominant political trend that we see in the richer countries of the world, um, a reactionary response to – squeezes it on living standards and all kinds of other things, you know, so you, you end up blaming foreigners, immigration, those sorts of things, not what your own government is doing or the capitalist system or anything like that. Right. And and it was brought to a head um, under Corbyn, because with Corbyn, um, and, and, and this goes to show the uh, the politics of it, really, because You had Corbyn come along in, say, 2019 with, you know, a generous program of welfare spending and job support and all the rest of it. Um, But because he wasn't seen as patriotic enough, a bit too equivocal on Europe, not anti enough. And because he was not seen as, um, you know, know, he is smeared with being supporting terrorism and all that kind of stuff. Um, So you had what shocked a lot of people. A big chunk of formerly safe Labour Party seats went to the Conservatives. So you had this old Etonian liar and chancellor, Boris Johnson, was more in line with uh, British working class values um, that they saw as important. And that was it. I mean, Britain basically is... It's a fairly conservative country, right? You know, it was and,
0: always um, the Labour Party. The old Labour Party was always more Methodism than Marxism to begin with, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And, um, yeah, I mean, Corbyn, you know, might be a decent guy. He's he's actually my local MP, not, not my local MP, he's just a couple of miles away. He would be a, <laughs> it's a neighbor, either, <laughs> uh,
2: yeah,
1: a, a near MP. Um, you know, but basically he's very much in that mold as well.
0: You know, um, the, the argument, one of the arguments that you, you still hear um, from people on the left of the Labour Party and people who are critical of the Labour Party to the left is that uh, leaving leaving the European Union was good uh, because then somebody like Jeremy Corbyn could get into power and craft socialist policies that wouldn't otherwise be possible under the EU regulations and, and framework. Um, but oh. when I read your book, it reminds me of uh, what Francois Mitterrand tried in the 1980s, you know, tried to, to carve a, a, a different path of sort of like hyper so, Keynesian quasi-socialist path. And he paid the price. And part of the way that he paid that price was through the bond markets, right? Which leads back kind of to the yeah. thesis of your book, this concentration of invisible class power that exists um, in places like the city of London and down on Wall Street and Frankfurt and so on.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, on, on, on that, I mean, with, with Mitterrand, you know, Keynesianism in one country doesn't work if there's more than one country.
2: Basically,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it actually wouldn't even work in one country. The whole, like, the whole Keynesian notions are rubbish. But, um, but yeah, there, there's um, the, the problem is that the you know the theoretical backdrop, if there is one, to a Labour Party perspective would be that you can implement certain reforms and it won't be a problem for capitalism. Mm. And the thing is, they're very pro-capitalist. They'll only do what's, you know, been added up and accounted for and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, they they were um, dismissed by the electorate, not really because of their economic programme, although, you know, people are always skeptical about whether governments will implement what they say they're gonna do. Um, it was around this issue of, are you patriotic enough? Are you a kind of uh, responsible manager of the system? And so that that's where the uh, support for Corbyn fell down. I mean, you know, he, his policies, actually, if you look at them, the uh, manifesto which they put forward Had things like, you know, boosting defense spending, you know, supporting our wonderful arms industry. It actually, you know, worse to that effect, Um, together with all kinds of other stuff that were completely pro-imperialist. But all with this garbage about human rights and, uh, you know, uh, social values and all this stuff, which is what they always use as the counterpart.
0: Of course, it's the left wing yeah the left wing of capitalist imperialism essentially
2: yeah
0: well let's um let's get into more of that because a lot of your book is about the constraints. I feel like I get into a lot of um arguments with people in real life and online about the agency of various political actors or where social change comes from because there there seems to be like um this this inevitable conspiracy theorizing or this this inevitable refusal to understand that there are these deeper structures that exist within the economy and within society that mean that social change happens on the terms of capital, whether or not, you know, we want it to or not. Um, But I guess my question is, um, what are, what we'll talk about that agency thing. But first, what are some misconceptions uh, that you found about the connection between finance capital and industrial capital? right? Because this is constantly, is something that people are doing, they're separating Wall Street from Main Street. And also what makes some of these financial activities productive and others parasitic on uh, value creation?
1: Um.
0: Yeah, big topic. Big um, topic, I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're going for the big topics this time. Uh,
1: uh, I, I, I would say at the outset that, I mean, I, I'll make a couple of comments on it, but um, to properly
0: explain it would take up too much
1: time in a podcast,
0: frankly, sure. and it would take uh, an I, entire would, book called I, I, the city out from Verso box.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, okay, no, I'll, I'll, I'll plug the book, but basically, where it's explained in detail. But um, there's also for people who are interested in some of the Marxist value theory technicalities of this, um, there's an article I did, which is a, a bunch of bullet points. Um, on my blog, Economics of Imperialism, which I did, it's the 3rd of July, 2016, right? So there's a whole bunch of uh, comments talking about the links between uh, value theory, finance, and imperialism.
0: So that, that goes into it chapter and verse, basically. Um, I'm going to put that link in for um, the psychos who listen to our show and are really into that value theory <laughs> stuff, so they can look at it themselves. But.
1: Yeah, because, uh, well, I, I, I would stress that, you know, I uh, have studied Marx's Capital very intensely for a very long time. And um, really, I, I, I think that there's all kinds of issues with it, you know, the book not being or volume one was complete but volumes two and three were not and there's all kinds of uh, issues about how you fit it together um but basically um to sum up in more uh, everyday language um some of the some of the key some of the key points uh, not going into those details um It's true, as as you uh, indicated, that there's a lot of people on the left who want to make a distinction between the so-called real economy and the financial economy. And that seems to make sense. You know, obviously, a a bank or a stockbroker is not the same as a steel plant or an automaker. But what it does, if if you go down that path, you will end up – ignoring an important reality of today, which is a really key thing, which is how even the so-called okay or good productive capitalists, the industrialists or whoever, um, make full use of the financial system as a way to extend their monopolization of market control. And the other side of that view is to put down all the problems that we see as a function of it's the banks or it's the evil financiers, the hedge funds or whoever, ignoring that the banks are usually just the facilitators of the market mechanism. So, you know, they're facilitating something and that something they're facilitating is not something you're objecting to. So, you know, you're not objecting to the capitalist market. You're objecting to one dimension of it that makes it work. You know, so there's a real contradiction in that point of view. And a couple of examples, right? So take Apple, right? You, You would think Apple is a consumer electronics company. Well, more and more, it looks like it isn't. For example, I mean, the most outrageous example is it owns something called Braeburn Capital.
0: Mm, never heard of it. Uh,
1: no, Braeburn's a type of apple. They didn't want to call it Granny Smith or anything, you know, <laughs> so they called it Braeburn. Sounds um, very
0: fancy, like Burberry or something. So.
1: Yeah, it could, it could have been Golden Delicious or something like that as another <laughs> kind of apple. <laughs> but they called it Braeburn. And it's based in Nevada. Not quite in the desert, but it's in Nevada because Nevada's a low-tax haven and it's one of the world's biggest bond investment funds right but it's entirely within the apple system and it you know spends a lot of time dealing in bonds or take facebook when it bought whatsapp a number of years ago it mainly used its own shares to uh buy the company for about 20 billion dollars about 17 or so the 20 was Facebook shares. Yeah, it's a bit of cash out of the, you know, out of Zuckerberg's back pocket as well. Um, But basically, that was it. And similarly, um, today, there is news of Zoom buying another tech company, a uh, uh, cloud-based tech company, for nearly $15 billion, and it's using its own shares as a means of payment. So it wasn't even using any cash or using banks to you know set up a big loan and all that kind of stuff. It had a couple of banks as uh, advisors, but the whole deal was done by using um, Zoom shares to swap with the ownership of this company who was taking over. Five nine, I think it's called the one today. And with, uh, with Facebook, the story was he, he didn't even use any banks. He just phoned up the guy because he knew him in WhatsApp.
0: That's market power right there.
1: <laughs> That's market power, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And so when, when you get to this issue of productive versus parasitic or financial and that kind of thing, really you should not make it a moral distinction. But just look at how the system works. And... Um, you know as i say the the particular uh mechanism of this would go over too many details really which are sensible to in yeah. a podcast we'll but, get the so link we'll, we'll send them the link
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the book as well um and the book as well, yeah. <laughs> so um So we had that discussion about British finance and imperialism. So in your framework, then, what is imperialism? Is it just, as many people on the left will argue, is is imperialism just when the United States bombs stuff, you know, or intervenes in other places? What is this relationship that exists between the imperial power of a place like the United States or the UK and the financial power, not just national but also global?
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, the... The military power is the kind of most obvious and, you know, easy to comment on or to see, you know, when, you know, Tomahawk missiles get fired off and this kind of thing, you know, but, and they're integral to imperialist rule today, but they work best when you don't need to use them. And instead, they're there as a kind of, you know, a backstop, you know, a big stick to use if needed. But otherwise, you're making sure that all these other minions do what you tell them to and play by the so-called rules of the game, right? The rules-based so, international uh, the,
0: order, as they call it. Yeah, yeah, right. All
1: the, you know, the rule of law, all that kind of sure. stuff. The rules of in the international order are the ones made up by the U.S., the Brits, and the whole Anglo system, right? So that's what you've got to do to be one of the accepted um, accepted people in the world otherwise you can't join the world trade organization um, and you're kind of cut out of all kinds of international uh, relationships so um you know the with and many people in the past have also focused on you know the imf the world bank and all those sorts of things and how it's pretty obvious that if you're not in the good books of the us you find out you won't get an imf loan that kind of thing because the uh the us has a, a blocking vote on the imf what they did this is a joke actually that as more and more countries joined the imf and as the us share of the vote fell it made sure that the blocking vote number also fell Mm. So they had always just enough to do a blocking vote. So, you know, it might be even 25% or something, I can't remember the number, but they always made sure they had just a bit more than the blocking vote required in order to screw anybody who wanted to do something that they <laughs> um But it goes beyond that, and it's probably s- simplest to see in the foreign exchange sphere because... Um, If you look at foreign exchange dealing, in any foreign exchange deal, you know, dollar and the euro, sterling and the Japanese yen, whatever, um, you have two currencies. And for those two currencies to be transacted, money has to shift. You know, Japanese yen from one account to another, sterling from one to another, dollars from one to another. But the thing is that The U.S. dollar is on 88% of one side of all of these deals. So therefore, you know, close to 90% of all the deals going on in the world involve the U.S. dollar. Therefore, if the U.S. doesn't like you, it can completely screw up your ability even to do a foreign exchange deal. And then when you consider that, um, you know, many commodities like oil and Know, copper whatever it is let alone you know hogs and corn and wheat and coffee and all the rest of it are priced in dollars and aerospace and drugs <laughs> easy. they're all priced in dollars um it means that you need to hand over dollars if you want to buy anything um and it's you can but it's awkward to do it in another currency So this means basically that the U.S. can hinder your ability to even do a transaction, and you're not even in the U.S. or plan to go there or anything else. But if you want to do a transaction in U.S. dollars, it ends up going through the U.S. banking system. The U.S. doesn't like you. They say, get lost. You can't use the system. That's it.
0: There's been a lot of talk in the in recent days about uh, the Cuban embargo that we've had for 60 yeah. years, and you see commentators saying, "Well, you know, they can still trade with the rest of the world in Cuba. You know, it's just the U.S. That's 90 percent of transactions right there, right? And and yeah, yeah, people who yeah. trade with Cuba, of course, uh, are sanctioned themselves. Not to mention Iran and and China and Russia, all these companies. So it's a big stick.
1: Yeah, and and, and even if they avoided the dollar entirely, you know, say the euro versus the Cuban peso, that kind of thing. Um, the U.S. has got its other stick to use, stick number two, of saying anyone who th- does a deal with a country under our sanctions, maybe we'll bar them from any trading with the U.S. You know, so if you're a bank, you um, you know I think HSBC was probably one of the recent uh, international banks you know, in this UK based bank mainly operating in Asia um, you know they get fined if they do transactions outside what the US likes and the US has dished out billions of dollars of fines on European and other banks for um, doing things they didn't like and. Um, That sort of sanction is really important for uh, as a way that the U.S. can strangle another economy without firing any missiles. And in the case of Iran, it's pretty drastically obvious that it's doing that all the time. And um, it helps ensure that the U.S.- um, sanctions, even though they're unilateral US sanctions, they get followed by the Europeans and by everybody else.
0: Um, This actually gets to another, I think, important part of your book too, because we're used to on this show talking about crisis theory. I mean, crisis theory is very sexy. Crisis theory, you know, there's maybe Heinrich Grossman's right about breakdown theory, you know, for people who are invested in some sort of communist future. Uh, Marxist crisis theory seems pretty important, but you criticize David Harvey and and other Marxists for uh, overly focusing on this crisis tendency. Why is it important to understand these mundane workings of finance and these everyday exercises of class power in the world?
1: Well, um, I I don't think there's anything wrong with examining and explaining tendencies of crisis. The the problem is, for people who, if you like, have a big focus on what they see as their explanation of Marx's capital, um, you know i I'll leave aside that I think they often get it wrong. and that that's true with Harvey as with many other people in in my view. Yeah. But what they often end up doing is um, focusing on the extreme aspects of the crisis, and ignoring the regular mechanism. And it's the regular mechanism, sorry, mechanism, if you like, that grinds people down every day of the week. Right. And in particular, what they often ignore is the um, imperial dimension of that. And Harvey, in particular, gets it wrong on imperialism and what's actually happening with transfers of value and all the rest of it i think it's completely wrong on that kind of stuff um so my book focuses on the regular mechanism because then you can see how it's a general thing that you're inside the machine right and you can't do anything about it you're you know and it's grinding you down every day of the week and once you understand those things you're less likely to have a misunderstanding about what's going on and you're less likely to come up with the wrong political conclusions and in particular with imperialism and i think you cannot exaggerate too much or you're not even exaggerating if you stress how a small group of countries runs the show They set the rules for the whole way this damn system works and you know it means that you shouldn't look at an individual country and say you know oh they're doing the wrong thing or whatever or they're a small country they don't really count nobody really cares about them Mm -hmm. though everyone operates in a particular position in the world economy And you need to look at that in order to have a view on where they fit. So whether it comes to assessing China or whether it comes to looking at little places like Luxembourg or whatever else, they've all got a certain role in in the system and they play play a kind of subordinate or they play a part of the – you know, the mechanism of fluidity in, in there. You know, a, a lot of people would say, for example, that, well, okay, Switzerland, right? You can't call Switzerland imperialists. You know, they don't even have a navy, right? <laughs> Something like that, right?
0: That sounds like a dare you're willing to take up. You can't call Switzerland imperialists, go.
1: <laughs> um, but, of course, what they do is they play a certain role in that system. They, they play the role of, um, you know, the... They're home to a bunch of, uh, you know, happy-go-lucky, independent Swiss things. (laughs) And they're a tax haven and, you know, all the rest of it, right? So they play a particular role in that system. And similarly with, uh, you know, a bunch of the Europeans, they play a role in that mechanism. Even if they're not one of the top dogs, even if they're not, you know, somebody brimming with missiles and tanks and guns and whatever. So, so you got to see where they fit in the system. And basically it's an Anglo dominated system. So all of the other people you may not like too much like Saudi Arabia. Well, guess who supports them? Right. Well, you may not like what Israel is doing. Well, guess who supports them? You know? So, This is uh, the way to see the world, not an individual country, but see where they fit in the system of domination. Uh, That's the key thing.
0: So so finance and imperialism and the capitalist world system is obviously constantly in development. Uh, We've seen over the last 50 years uh, something called neoliberalism. Uh, We've seen a process of financialization. Um, A lot of people argue that, you know, I think mistakenly, based on what you said before, that that financial capitalism has now replaced a lot of uh, industrial production and we're in like a qualitatively different form of capitalism now. Uh, is it qualitative or is it quantitative? What is neoliberalism? Was it simply like a choice on the part of like intellectuals and policymakers or is it more of a, a, a sort of molecular process? Um, where, where have we been going the last 50 years? What's happening? with finance and imperialism and capitalism?
1: Um, it's it's true that um, as a dialectical approach tells you that uh, I mean, <clears throat> quantitative change is into qualitative ones. Um, but basically, I think it's more of a quantitative rather than a, an abrupt um, qualitative change. And... Um, For example, the term neoliberalism, I don't think you'll find it in my book. If you did like a word search, it's probably not there. Um, And that's because I think it's a silly term. One, neoliberal, right? It's not new, and it's not liberal either. So why are you calling it neoliberal?
0: (laughs) Explain, explain for our listeners.
1: (laughs) So... um, you know, for example, the uh, the new bit. Well, it's not new because these things were incrementally done from the euro markets in the 50s and 60s to uh, deregulation in the 70s. And the term neoliberal, what they wanted to do all the all the myriad of books on this, they want to kind of pin it down to Reagan and Thatcher in 1979-80. Yes. Right?
0: Yep. Well, and the Chicago school intellectual tradition. Yeah, 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 yeah. indeed. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, yeah, you're getting really sophisticated to talk about Chicago school and monetarism, and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, no, true. Um, but they were, all of these moves were um, a harsher, if you like, capitalistic response to what was going on. And, well, why were they doing that? um there was this damn crisis right yeah. you know it, it had falling profitability which is you know very noticeable even the official statistics into the late 60s and then they had to do something right um so they did they made a mess of it but what could they do they weren't used to it right the old system seemed to work for a while a few problems occurring etc cetera, etc cetera, and, and then they, they had to do other things and it led to all kinds of financial, economic, and whatever disruption. You had inflation, which was, you know, two, three, four 4%, maybe in the 60s, became 10, 15, 20% by the time you got into the 70s. And it caused havoc. It led to a rapid development of, you know, futures markets, financial markets, and everything else. But those were responses. They weren't kind of doing it on purpose. Right. They were responding to a volatile uh, international system. Um, And the – so all of these things were developments from the crisis of capitalism in the 70s. And they tried more and more different ways to overcome – the problems of growth. Um, yes, there's a, more of an attack on the working class, true, but what do you expect as a capitalist crisis? Um, and what also happened, though, and this is something which um, these guys generally don't focus on much, is that isn't it a bit strange if... With the collapse of the Soviet Union after 1989 and the uh, access, especially to European capital, to um, a vast field of capitalist investment and a whole chunk of workers who are highly skilled, literate, and numerate, that you can now exploit for next to nothing... On top of that, a few years later, or roughly about the same time, actually, you had hundreds of millions of workers in Asia, especially in China, also, you know, uh, heavily exploited using the latest machinery when you exported it to them. You're doing all that. So you had... An amazingly bigger field of exploitation going on, right. and they still have damn crises.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say one third of a, of the world population is all of a sudden thrust into the cash nexus, yeah. and and yeah. and and, yeah. Uh, and and being dominated by capital. And there still was only a little tiny boom in the 1990s, yeah. and we're still yeah. in crisis.
1: Yeah.
0: So it it kind of shows then
1: that. You know there is a, a big structural fundamental problem that they had um the best options available possible you know cheaper labor lots more of it you know everything else you know big boost in productivity and all that kind of stuff and uh you know they still end up in crises and what has happened i mean it, it's a problem that you can't As I explain in the book, my view on, you know, can you measure profitability and all that kind of stuff, you know, and it's pretty tough to do so. And especially when it takes more financial forms, you know, Mm. where did the profit come from anyway? What about all the tax havens? What about all the accounting tricks and all that stuff? So it's hard to measure, but I I would say that there's been a problem of profitability off and on over Mm -hmm. a long period of time. Um, and it's taken this uh, form of uh, speculative activity as a response to that, and I've you know tried to explain how that occurred in my book and various other things I've written on my blog and and else. Um, so that's why I I don't really like. The, the terms like neo-feudalism, neoliberalism, rentier capitalism, that yeah. kind of thing. Because I mean, they they normally try to hide the reality of a parasitic nature of the rich, powerful countries on the rest of the world economy. You know, um, I mean, people know what
0: Apple does. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, almost no production <laughs> and a complete ginormous markup.
0: They hold uh, this uh, international pro- this um, intellectual property. They hold this in California. Uh, oh, but they're yeah. not even, of course, making the phones, producing the phones themselves. They're outsourcing to a Foxconn or something like that. And yeah. then when it comes yeah. back, it's sold for 20 times more than, than it was uh, produced for. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that, that happens in all kinds of things. Right? I, I wrote an article, you know, best part of 10 years ago now on, on the T-shirt. And, and showed that, um, you know, this, this, this thing, um, even, you know, so you've got no real pretense about super-duper technology and wonderful connectivity and all the rest of it. It's just a fucking t-shirt, right? Yeah. <laughs> so how come this thing is selling for, like, five euros, right? It's not not $1,000, right? It's selling for five euros, five dollars, whatever. And it still only costs, like, you know, 25 cents to make. And if you trace through that, as as I did in uh, in a couple of articles on this say a few years ago on my blog, if you look up T-shirt economics, you'll find it on there. Um, It traces how all the markup and everything is basically an income accruing to the rich countries, you know, whether it be in in, uh, sales tax, whether it be in, uh, you know, Advertising revenues where it be in, you know, transport revenues, whatever All the, you know, if, if you're a shop assistant, the reason you get paid is uh, There's all these cheap goods coming in from Asia And, you know, um, they're sold for the $5, whatever it is
0: And this is the soul of the mundane, everyday capitalist exploitation and imperialism that you're talking
1: about Yeah, yeah And, and all of that stuff is, you know Nothing to do with neo-feudalism,
2: right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Capitalism, for Christ's sake, you know. know, uh, I mean, it's true there's a lot of so-called rentier capitalism. It's it's true there is a lot of, um, you know, just dealing off property values and uh, speculative money and all the rest of it. So there's all this stuff going on, too. But do not think that the underlying capitalist exploitation is somehow no longer there. It's just that you're not evidently seeing it in front of you because they're ripping off somebody else. <laughs> right. It's the commercial power of companies like Apple and all the others or the Amazons of this world, right? They're commercial power. They're taking a big cut from everybody.
0: So how, so there's, here's the big concluding question then, and we'll try to do this in three minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> as much time as you want. Um, how does your work then uh, help us to understand the task ahead of us, which is to get the hell out of this shitty uh, capitalist system? How to create a better world? How to create socialism or communism? What What are some uh, some lessons I think we can take from from uh, your work?
1: Um. Well, the
0: if you say, well, you know,
1: why do you want to overcome capitalism? It should be pretty obvious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think everybody who's uh, listening to this podcast now is on the same page on that. <laughs> I would hope anyways. Maybe there's some haters out there who are using this in order yeah. to strengthen capitalism, but I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, really, the, uh, it's one of the ironies of all the uh, you know innovation and gadgets and everything else, right? They don't depend on capitalism at all. Uh, you don't need capitalism to produce this stuff. People would do it. And they're often uh, doing it in the most kind of ridiculous sort of way. Um, But, you know, you've got the technology, you've got the resources, and you've got everything else that would enable you to um, deliver what the world needs. But basically, the hindrance you have is capitalist property relations it's not that people don't know how to do it, or you haven't got the technology, you haven't got the ability, you haven't got whatever, right? You haven't got literacy, numeracy, and all that stuff. And even if you didn't have those things, you could easily generate them. So basically, um, all of these things could be done. And where I see my work contributing to... Um, you know, and it's basically trying to contribute to an understanding of this. So, what's really going on to understand that is an important starting point for understanding uh, what a good response might be. I don't know what the response is. You should have in your particular situation, your country, your you know whatever. Right? You got to work that out for yourself. I'm not offering and kind of an ABC guide to overthrowing the system. But basically, um, I'm trying to offer an understanding of how the world works. And on the basis of clear understanding of how the world works, you're in a better position to try and figure out what to do about it.
0: hundred percent. I think even just if people take away from this conversation or your book or your articles that, uh, capitalist exploitation and the domination of capital is more than simply shadowy bankers sitting in a smoke filled room somewhere that there's a in fact a system logic to capital and that finance is not separate from that in fact it's very much a part of it and that it's insufficient then to just simply like get rid of i don't know george soros or jamie diamond or something even that i think is helpful Mm mm-hmm so thank you (laughs) I think we've both kind of run out of steam at this point but this was an excellent episode Tony and I'm going to put all these links in there and I uh, highly recommend people check out the book it's I think my my friend uh, Pablo's Rufos, who's friends with the show, and I was asking him about a really good like, elementary text on understanding finance. He sent uh, your book my way and uh, I think it does that and it does more. Uh, I think it's a very powerful text. So thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Tony. To keep him strong, moving in the right direction, living just enough, just enough for the city. A dollar. His mother goes to scrub the floors for meaning and you best believe she hardly gets a pity, living just enough. Short